Almighty God and dear Heavenly Father, we come uh, before your throne of grace this morning once again and we thank you for the immense privilege it is to come uh, before the open pages of the Bible this morning. We know that our believers all over the world today who would long to be with other believers whom they love, would long to have a copy of the scriptures in their own language, would long to have the freedom to meet together publicly like this. And this morning we don't take those things for granted, Father. We return our thanks to you for all of those gifts and blessings. And Father, we look to the Holy Spirit himself. We thank you for his indwelling in each of us who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that he would do his great work of leading us into all truth. Father, we thank you that he is the greatest teacher. And we do pray this morning that he might speak clearly through your written word. Father, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you for its clarity. We thank you for its truth and its life-changing power. We thank you, Father, that men and women and boys and girls all over the world today are coming into contact still with the message of this book. And in the pages of this book, meeting the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, and having their lives absolutely transformed and their sins forgiven. We pray this morning that if there is anybody here today uh, at Fernie Lee this morning who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Saviour, that this morning they would see that they are a sinner, that they need a personal Saviour from sin, and that there is only one Saviour who has been provided in love by you, our great God, and that is Jesus Christ. And we thank you, each of us, this morning who knows and who loves the Lord Jesus. We thank you from the bottom of our hearts for what it means to us to follow him, and to know him and to love him, and to know full and free and final forgiveness of all sin. And so we look to you now, Father, as we look into your word and pray that you would speak to us clearly uh, in ways that we might understand. We pray that we would have open eyes and open ears to perceive the truths of your word and ready hands and feet to put it into practice. We ask all of these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. 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 Well, a very simple uh, section from Matthew's Gospel this morning, and perhaps a very well-known section, not, well, not as well-known, of course, as the feeding of the 5,000, and here we have the feeding of the 4,000. And I want to look at it really under three very simple headings with you this morning, and I want to keep things simple, and I want to keep things brief today. So, first of all, we're going to turn our eyes to the Saviour, and we're going to turn our eyes to the Saviour who had compassion. That's the first one. The Saviour who had compassion. And then secondly, as we look at the miracle itself, we'll see the supply that never ends. The supply that never ends. And then lastly, we'll look at the satisfaction of the crowd. We'll look at the satisfaction of the crowd. So first of all, let me take you back to the beginning of it. And we'll read verses 32 and 33 again. And this time with our focus on the Saviour. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, and then listen to his words, I have compassion on the crowd. Because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat, I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. Well, friends, the Lord Jesus Christ here has compassion on the crowd. The question we need to ask ourselves as students of the Bible then at this point is this, who were the crowd? Who were the crowd? And this is actually vitally important for understanding this story, this account. Who were the crowd? The context is vitally important. Both Matthew and Mark give us this account. Now all four of the Gospel writers include the account of the feeding of the 5,000. But only Matthew and Mark also include a very similar but distinct account of the feeding of the 4,000. We'll get perhaps to to why in a second. But it is concluded, it is included rather, uh, in these two Gospels. 
And we need to understand who the crowd were that the Lord Jesus was dealing with in the first instance and who the crowd were that he was dealing with in the second instance. If you were to be reading through Matthew's Gospel and you get to the feeding of the 5,000, which is just in the previous chapter, uh, sorry, chapter 14, and then you get to chapter 16 and you read um, chapter 15 and you read this uh, account of the feeding of the 4,000, you could be forgiven for thinking, why include this? Why include this when it's so similar? Now, I put two, uh, the two accounts together and I tried to make a list of all the points of similarity and I've counted 11 points of similarity. You might have counted more, but they are incredibly similar. The language that's used is similar. Matthew and Mark, under the inspiration of the Spirit, they could have said, well, we're going to, we're going to narrate this account, but we're going to use different language. We're going to use different terms. We're going to use different descriptions, but they don't. They use similar language and similar terms and similar descriptions. So why include this account? Well, there's two very simple answers to that, I suppose. The first is obvious. The first is it's included because it happened. Is included because it happened. These things were written down because these things are the things which happened. And yet, there's another level to it. Turn with me to John's Gospel. John's Gospel and chapter 10. John's Gospel and chapter 10. Because it's not just quite so simple as included because it happened. John, John's Gospel... Sorry, John's Gospel and chapter 20. John's Gospel and chapter 20. We'll come to John 10 later. John chapter 20... And reading from verse 30. This is where John reveals the purpose of his gospel. Each of the four gospels has unique purposes. They're all there to unfold Christ to us. To demonstrate Christ in all of his beauty and glory and majesty. And we're thankful and grateful that we have four gospels. Not just one. We have four gospels. We have four different vantage points and viewpoints to view our amazing saviour from. And John gives his reasons here in John chapter 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. That's interesting. So John was present when things were said, when things were done, in the presence of Christ, that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he was withheld from including in his gospel. There were things which John could remember, things which John witnessed, that were not included in his gospel. That's interesting. But these are written, he says, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's John's particular purpose, John's particular reason behind writing his gospel. And he has, under the Holy Spirit's direction, composed his gospel very carefully. And each of the gospels is the same. Absolutely meticulous care taken over what is included and where it's included and how it's described. And so with that in mind then, we go back to Matthew chapter 15 and we ask about the purpose of the inclusion of this. And the two accounts are here in Matthew chapter 15 and then Mark chapter 8. So I'd like to take you to Mark chapter 7 just for a moment to notice something about the context. Mark chapter 7 for the context of this. And geography matters. Geography matters here. Mark chapter 7. And um, you'll notice back in verse 24, you have the beginning of this conversation between Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman, the woman from Tyre and Sidon. And in both accounts, Matthew and Mark, this feeding of the 4,000 takes place after that conversation. And that's very significant. We'll come back to that in Matthew. But then look at verse 31 of Mark chapter 7. Then he, that is Jesus, returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. 
in the region of the Decapolis. So he is in this area called the Decapolis because there are ten principal towns in the area. Uh, Decapolis, ten towns, and there were sort of ten Gentile towns. Ten Gentile towns. So the Lord Jesus is now firmly in a Gentile area. The customs are different, the people are different, the language is slightly different. This is different territory altogether than when he fed the 5,000 on the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee with a largely Jewish crowd. Now he's dealing with a Gentile crowd. A Gentile crowd. Gentile people, incidentally, like you and me. Now, uh, I don't know if there are any Jews here this morning, but I suspect not. So most of us, at least, will be Gentile people this morning. So we're dealing with the Lord Jesus Christ interacting with people like you and me, with Gentiles. If we had lived in the region of Galilee, I'm sure we would have lived in the Decapolis as Gentiles. So let's go back then to Matthew. Back then to Matthew. And just a little bit more context. Come back with me to Matthew 10. Matthew 10. Matthew chapter 10, and let's go back to verse 5. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 5. Fascinating conversation between the Lord and his disciples here. He's sending out the twelve. These twelve, Jesus sent out, instructing them. Listen very carefully, friends, to the instructions. Go nowhere among the Gentiles. And enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Let me read that again. Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So these twelve disciples are given very crystal clear instructions that the people that they are to deal with, the people that they are to bring the message of the kingdom before, are Jewish people. Those who belong to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, those who are descended uh, from God's people, the Jews, that is the people that they are to go to. They're not to concern themselves with Gentiles, people like you and me, the people in the Decapolis. This is just Matthew chapter 10. We're only five chapters later. What's changed? What's changed? Again, Matthew 15. We'll go back to our chapter, Matthew chapter 15. And we'll see uh, this continuing, Matthew chapter 15. And we'll go to that conversation that took place. Now I'm sure that um, a brother dealt with this maybe last time or the time before. I'm not sure how you've divided up Matthew. But let's just remind ourselves a little bit of this amazing conversation that takes place between the Lord and this woman. Verse 21. Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman, so a Gentile woman, not a Jew, from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon, but he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. And then listen to his answer. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. What an answer. What a reply. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith, be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. There's so much we could say about this and we're not going to cover it because I'm sure that it's been dealt with already in your studies. But all I want to establish is this, that here there is a very significant conversation between the Lord and this Gentile woman about... The relationship between the Lord's calling to come and to make God known and the Gentile people. 
And this conversation is fascinating. And she comes to the Lord again with this amazing reply. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. The dogs being a derogatory term used to refer to Gentile people as dogs, as outcasts, as those who are not clean, not pure. And she says, but I need the crumbs from the master's table. I need what is to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. I need this salvation that comes only from the Jews. And just a a few verses later, we find the Lord feeding a crowd in a very similar language, very similar way of Gentile people rather than Jewish people. So this is a fascinating transition in the Gospel of Matthew. We're dealing here with a saviour who had compassion. And his compassion was not and has never been limited to one nation on the face of the earth. The Lord Jesus came unto his own and his own received him not. He is the Messiah of the Jewish people. And yet, and yet there are people like us all over the world today who are gathering together because we love Jesus Christ. Because we have come to love him. Isn't that remarkable? There are people all over the world today who love Jesus Christ who are not Jews. We are not Jews. We've been brought in, brought near by the blood of Christ. And that seemingly impossible separation between Jew and Gentile has been done away with in Christ. And here we are. And we love him. And he's our Lord and our Saviour and our Messiah too. Absolutely remarkable. So that's how important this miracle is. That's why Matthew includes it. That's why Mark includes it. Now can I ask you a personal question this morning? Um, I want you to answer it uh, in the quietness of your own heart. And the only people who will know how you answer it are yourselves and God. Uh, So you must answer it honestly. It's a very personal question, and it is this. This morning as you sit here in Fernie Lee Gospel Hall, 2021, are you satisfied? Are you satisfied? Now when you ask a question like that, people will have all sorts of different reactions to it and they might want clarification. And what do you mean by being satisfied? Do you mean am I satisfied with my career? Am I satisfied with my family life? Well, many of us are suffering a lack of satisfaction because we don't know quite how our Christmas plans are going to go at the moment. Nobody can tell what restrictions are going to be announced even in the next few days. So there's maybe a lack of certainty, a lack of satisfaction. But what does it really mean to be satisfied? To be fulfilled? And I want to suggest to you this morning, whoever you are, I want to suggest to you that true satisfaction is only to be found in Jesus Christ. True satisfaction is only to be found in Jesus Christ. It's even possible, friends, for those of us who know and who love Jesus Christ to seek our satisfaction in other places. And then there are those who maybe don't know the Lord Jesus. I wonder if that's you this morning. I wonder if there's anybody here today who doesn't know the Saviour. And I would suggest to you that you, until you come to know him as Saviour and Lord, you will never know what true satisfaction really is. So we find here, first of all, a Saviour. And he's a Saviour who's compassionate. And he's compassionate towards men and women who are not part of the covenant nation. Can I say something very simple this morning? That God loves you. God loves you. And Jesus loves you. He's a compassionate Saviour. It's been said millions of times by millions of people since the Lord Jesus Christ came here to this world. But it can't be said enough, can it? God loves you. And Jesus loves you. And he has made provision. So we'll come to that in a few moments' time. The Saviour. Let's read about the supply then. What is it that happens uh, in this miracle? Verse 33. The disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place or or desert place to feed so great a crowd? 
Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. Friends, you can imagine the disciples thinking, here we go again. Here we go again. We've just had the experience of the 5,000 and yet again they they can't understand how they could possibly feed so many with the little meagre provisions that they have and yet they haven't come to understand yet that even just a tiny amount in the hands of the Saviour can meet all the need that is required. This is a supply which is never ending. This is miraculous provision from God. And it takes us, as readers of the Bible, all the way back, all the way back to the book of Exodus, all the way back to God feeding his people with manna from heaven in the wilderness. And that's why I believe that the writers were were led to use that word, the desert place, the desolate place. We're supposed to be thinking of the Exodus. We're supposed to be thinking of the manna coming down from heaven, that God alone, God alone can provide for his people. There is no lack of supply in God. There is no lack of supply in God. Let me take you back to the Psalms and Psalm 50. Psalm 50. Amazing words in this Psalm. Psalm 50 and from verse 10. And hear about the riches and treasures that lie in God. And the Psalmist writes this. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. And then this wonderful verse, verse 12 God says this through the psalmist, If I were hungry, I would not tell you. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. The world and its fullness are mine. There is no lack in God. There is no lack of supply in God. His resources are limitless and endless and inexhaustible. But I want you to think of the Saviour here again. And the Saviour, once again, having done it just a a chapter or two before, he takes these seven loaves and these few small fish, he takes these loaves and he breaks them. He takes them with his carpenter's hands and he breaks these loaves. And surely he can't help but think of when he will again break bread. And he'll break bread in the upper room. And he'll say to the disciples, this is a particular distinct way that I want you when I've gone, when I've died. To remember me. Week by week, I want you to remember me. And the way that I want you to do that is to break bread and to drink wine. And this this bread is a symbol of my body. Let me just read those verses to you. Very familiar verses. You don't need to turn to them in 1 Corinthians. Let's just read them uh, from verse 23. And this is Paul writing who has received it directly from the Saviour. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he goes on to speak about the the cup of the new covenant in his blood. Now, the the Saviour takes that bread there in the desert place and he breaks it. And surely it must have been in his mind that he was going to the cross We've talked about a saviour of compassion this morning. And he's a saviour of compassion, not just for physical provision here as we see it in uh, in Matthew chapter 15. But his compassion would drive him all the way to the cross of Calvary. In obedience, every step he took towards the cross, in absolute obedience to God's plan of salvation. For God to, to put redemption into action for sinful men and women like you and me. 
And Christ the Saviour would with unfaltering step make his way to Calvary. And every event that we find in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, including these events that we're reading about here, was all part of the steps towards Calvary. All preparing the way for that ultimate purpose of the Lord Jesus' life, which was to die on the cross of Calvary. Why? To pay the penalty for human sin. To pay the price for sin. This morning I wonder if you have had your sins forgiven. Have you placed your faith and trust in Christ this morning? And if you never have, if you never have done it, then this morning is the time to do it. You must do it now. You must do it today. Place your faith and trust in Christ and be forgiven of all sin. So there's no lack of supply. And there's no lack of supply in Christ for the forgiveness of sin. If anyone in Aberdeen today will come in repentance and faith to Christ, they will never be turned away. Because there's no lack of supply. They'll never be told, I'm sorry, there's no more room for you. I'm sorry, there's no more salvation left for you. If you come in repentance and faith, you will always find the open arms of the Saviour ready and willing to forgive. There is no lack of supply. So we have a Saviour who is compassionate. We have this supply which is never-ending. There, no, uh, there is no bottom to this. There's no exhausting it. And then I want to turn, lastly, to the satisfaction of the crowd. The satisfaction of the crowd. So let's read from verse 37. And they all ate and were satisfied. Wonderful words. They all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. I started, uh, well, earlier on, I, I asked you the question, are you satisfied? Are you satisfied? I wonder what your honest answer to that is. I wonder what your honest answer to that is, that when all is said and done, in the quietness of your own heart, perhaps in the middle of the night when it's just you on your own, are you satisfied? True satisfaction is only to be found in Christ. And I want to, as we begin to bring our thoughts to a close, I want to think about three things, three things that are satisfied. Three things that are satisfied. When the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross of Calvary, he was satisfying the wrath of God. Satisfying the wrath of God. How can that be? God's wrath against sin. God's wrath against all sin and all wickedness that demands to be exacted. That his wrath demands to be satisfied and demands for the death price to be paid. The death price of sin. The wages of sin is death. And this demanded to be satisfied. Christ Jesus in his perfection and in his beauty, having lived this spotless life. You know, if you and I were to, to take our life and to roll it out before God like a carpet or like some sort of tapestry or something, there'd be so many flaws, so little to show for all that God has poured into our lives. And yet Christ could, could roll his life out before God as, as a sort of red carpet, if you like, of absolute spotless perfection, not a single word that had to be retracted, not a single action regretted, not a single thought to be ashamed of. Everything perfect and spotless and pure. And he went to the cross and his hands were, were, were nailed, his wrists were nailed, his, the, the crown of thorns placed upon his head. And there he was satisfying the wrath of God. The wrath of God was satisfied in Christ. All the claims of divine holiness and righteousness were met and fully fulfilled in Christ. Paying that price that you and I deserve to pay for our sin. God's wrath was 
satisfied. Turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 53. It was mentioned uh, earlier this morning, Isaiah chapter 53. God's wrath was satisfied. Isaiah chapter 53. And we see that satisfaction very clearly, prophetically, 700 years before Christ, in verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. But then for the second aspect of satisfaction, look down with me to verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. When Christ Jesus died on the cross and he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? There was a, a grief, there was a, a, a terrible grief there as he felt that separation and as he bore our sin. And yet, and yet, the Lord Jesus Christ knew as he went to the cross that he was going to do something to satisfy the just demands of God against sin. And the Lord Jesus Christ is satisfied with the work of Calvary. The Lord Jesus Christ is satisfied with the work of Calvary and will be further satisfied in the redemption of his people. And when we stand before him, made perfect in Christ, when we stand before him, presented to him, he will be satisfied in us. Isn't that remarkable? Satisfied in us. If we were just take a moment just to look inside our own hearts and our own lives, we would never be satisfied. Never be satisfied. And we live in a very unsatisfied culture, don't we? And it's a lack of satisfaction that actually drives uh, the world system, isn't it really? The commercial system. Uh, trying to sell us things we don't need. Trying to make a, convince us that we don't look as we ought to look. Or uh, we're not as clever as we ought to be. Or we're not as successful as we really could be. Or that really we're falling short in every possible area of life. And if only we'll buy their product, then we will be satisfied. And if only we'll enroll on their course, we will be satisfied. And if only we could look a bit more like them and less like me, then I would be satisfied. Where does our satisfaction lie? It lies in Christ. And once we have come into Christ, and we've been redeemed, and we've been born again, we learn this amazing fact that Christ is satisfied in us. It doesn't mean that we aren't a work in progress. That we aren't being changed from glory into glory, and there's that work of sanctification to be done. But we have been made acceptable in the beloved one now that's a remarkable thing but what about you what about you God God in his justice satisfied at the cross Christ Christ the offering satisfied but what about me what about you well just over the page in Isaiah chapter 55 there's a question posed that I want to just conclude with Isaiah chapter 55 and the first two verses there's this wonderful uh, invitation made. In fact, the heading in my Bible is the compassion of the Lord. We're coming back to where we started, the compassion of the Saviour. And the invitation is given, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labour for that which does not satisfy why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labour for that which does not satisfy 
Only Christ can satisfy. Let me ask you the question this morning. Are you satisfied? Come to the Saviour. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who satisfied the wrath of God. He's the one who is satisfied with his own sacrifice and the redemption of a new people for him. I wonder if you're part of that people this morning. We have a compassionate saviour here in Matthew chapter 15. He had compassion on the crowd. And you know, we pass crowds every day. I lived in London, as you know, for two and a half years. And I was just uh, sometimes overwhelmed by the crowds, you know. Sometimes overwhelmed by the crowds. And I used to take a little moment uh, on Wednesday afternoons um, outside Green Park Tube Station to hand out Gospels, Gospels of Mark and Luke, outside the Tube Station. And, you know, I enjoyed doing that, but, but sometimes I was just overwhelmed and I thought, you know, I never see the same person twice. I stand in the same place every day, uh, every week, and I've been doing so for months, and I've never seen the same person twice. And they come from all over the world, and they're from all over the city. And how can we possibly make any difference for the gospel in a city this size? But even Aberdeen, it applies here, of course, too, doesn't it? There are crowds upon crowds upon crowds of people in this city who don't know anything about the gospel of Christ. And yet our Saviour is still a Saviour who has compassion on the crowds. We can become hardened to them at times, can't we? They can become people that we just need to get past on our way to the shops. And yet the Lord looked on the people and he had compassion on them for he saw them as sheep having no shepherd. And we remember his words in John chapter 10, I have sheep that are not of this fold. And that's what he's reinforcing here with these Gentile believers in Matthew's gospel. He's got compassion for his own people, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Oh, absolutely. But here these people need him too. And he's got compassion on them. And it's compassion that will take him all the way to the cross. And there he'll satisfy the wrath of God. He'll see of the travail of his soul and be satisfied. And he is offering, he is making it possible this morning, brothers and sisters, friends, for you to be satisfied in Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that we have a compassionate Saviour. We thank you, Father, that we have a Saviour who loves, a Saviour who looks on the crowd and, and has compassion upon them. This morning, for those of us who know and love you, Father, if there is any coldness in our heart, or if there's any callousness or lack of feeling towards unsafe people, we do pray, Lord, that you would break that down. We do pray that you'd soften our hearts again and give us a similar love uh, for the lost around us that your dear son had and still has. And we thank you, Father, that salvation is still available. We thank you, Father, that men and women and boys and girls can still be saved through faith in Christ. And we thank you that those who come in repentance and faith are never turned away because the supply is limitless. We thank you, Father. And we pray this morning that if there's anybody here who doesn't yet know the Saviour, that today they would find true satisfaction for the very first time and find it in Christ alone. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. I wonder whether we could maybe take time to sing in closing. Uh, number 162. Number 162. Here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood, when the Prince of Life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood on the mount of crucifixion, fountains open deep and wide through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Number 162.